I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. Calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Welcome to Vulgar History, a feminist women's history comedy podcast. My name is Anne Foster, and this is part three of Mary Queen of Scots. So it's kind of a series within a series. Like this whole season is through something about Mary Queen of Scots. We started looking at her grandmother, Margaret Tudor, her mother, Marie de Guise, her mother-in-law, her ex-mother-in-law, Catherine de Medici, and now we're on Mary herself. And this is the third part of her story. And this is the point at which I'll point out Initially, when I was planning this, I thought Mary Queen of Scots would be maybe four episodes. But here we are, three episodes in, and a lot of the stuff that she's best known for are, are not even on the horizon yet. So we're just kind of sitting in this, sitting with this story. And I think for me, just to really understand and to share this story to you as a storyteller, we really need to, to sit with it. Like there's so many people, there's so many things happening, like to, to cut out anything would I think be doing a disservice to to the extent of which I want to explain her story and what all happened. So for this episode, and the references for all the episodes are similar, but you know, sometimes I add a new book when there's a new part of the story. And this week is one of those times. So 
again, I'm using a lot of the same references that I talked about before, which are all fantastic books. And I really recommend you dive into them to learn more about all, all the sides of the story. So Embroidering Her Truth, Mary Queen of Scots in the Language of Power by Claire Hunter. Daughters of the North, Jean Gordon and Mary Queen of Scots by Jennifer Morick Henderson. Mary Queen of Scots, The True Life of Mary Stuart by John Guy. Homecoming, The Scottish Years of Mary Queen of Scots by Rosemary Goring. And then this week I'm adding a new, a new source, which is the book David Rizzio and Mary Queen of Scots, Murder at Hollywood, Hollywood by David Tweedy. And that's because today we're introducing another important character who was on the scene before, but I, I wanted to give him a really good introduction. So I was holding off and talking about him until now. But just to recap, if, if you're listening to this in you know, real time, then it's been seven days since you heard part two. So last time we talked about the cock over the north situation, which is where Mary Queen of Scots went to visit the north of Scotland. And while she did develop an interest in and an admiration for bagpipes and, you know, plaid outfits. She also, with the encouragement of her, it turns out, piece of shit, half-brother, Hollywood icon, Jimmy Stewart, she kind of waged war against Cock o the North and the Catholics up there. John Knox is just wandering around being full of shit. Elizabeth, the first down in England, was like keeping one eye on Mary. She also got smallpox, but then got better. Mary, we talked about how she likes parties, she likes music and dancing. That makes John Knox think that she's like from the devil. And I, I think I probably said this before, but I do want to just underline the point that John Knox hated her before he met her. Like he hated the whole idea of her. And she showed up and he was just like, oh my God, she's a whore. She, everything she did just cemented in the fact that he knew he was going to hate her because he had to hate her because... She was a Catholic monarch. She was a woman. And he, like the whole Scottish Reformation was still so tentative. And he knew that if she gained more power, then that would be shitty for him. So he kind of had to hate her. But I think it's such bullshit. She showed up and she was working really hard to try and be like, here's what I'm like. You know, I'm going to, I think Protestants and Catholics can be cool with each other. And John Knox is just like, mm, sorry, sounds like a slut to me. He said, as he went off famously, be one of the big people who paid the sex workers of Edinburgh and then married a teenager. But anyway, I just think so much of her story is retold as like, she's this passionate woman who couldn't control her impulses. And a lot of that is trickled down from how John Knox is writing about her. And he was full of shit. Anyway, so David Rizzio enters the chat. I need to talk about a man who we didn't get into so far, but who becomes incredibly important to this story. And most of all, is cool and chill and 100% is loyal to Mary. And that some of the other people in the story, and I'm still doing this, to people who know how things end up, they know that I'm doing this, but everyone else, I'm just, somebody comes into the story and I'm trying to not let what they did later affect how I tell you about what they were doing now. Because I'm trying to tell this, you know, from Mary's point of view and who she saw and who she trusted and... Anyway, like there's not going to be a surprise twist in terms of is this person a piece of shit or not. David Rizzio is a cool guy. He's a good guy. He was always on Mary's side. And I am just really happy to bring that energy to this podcast series after kind of everyone <laughs> has been surprised shitty to her. So we're going to talk about this guy. He's going to come and meet Mary and become her like bestie. But so I'll just explain kind of who he is and what the situation is. So he was born in 1533. So he's like 10 years-ish older than Mary. In the small village of Pancellieri, 20 miles south of Turin, 
in the Duchy of Savoy. So we would call this now like Italy. But so he's like, people called him an Italian, but this is before Italy was a thing. And, you know, it's the same as in the Catherine de' Medici episode, you know, people consider these people Italians, but like Italy was not one cohesive country. So Savoy is on the other side of the peninsula from the wealthy Republic of Venice. And Venice was known for running the best diplomatic corps in Europe. Like they just, I don't know, it was like the Washington DC of its time or the, the United Nations of its time. So Venetian law stated that while ambassadors had to be like more rich people, their secretaries could come from a lower class. And this is where the Rizzio family fits in. I'm, his name is David Rizzio. Um, Mary called him Davy. Everyone called him Davy. So I'm just going to call him Davy because that's cute and it suits him. But so the Rizzio family had a history of working in this sort of diplomatic role. So it was kind of like the family business. Although his father... His father worked as a music teacher, and this is probably part of where David got his skill from, but also his interest, and his father knew the importance of music. So Davy studied music. He was very skilled at it. Um, he went off to like get a higher education in music, you know, composition and performance. And then later on, using family connections, he got a place working at the court of the Duke of Savoy, where he could watch and learn how royal courts worked. And this was like... We talked about this in the Catherine de' Medici episode, but this is like scheming is happening. Like this isn't just some sort of like casual situation. Like you really got to see like how this worked, how people at the highest levels of power operated. And then in 1561, when Mary Queen of Scots came back from France to Scotland, kind of all the people in Europe were like, what's her deal? Like, and who is she going to marry? And how can we get her to marry the person we want her to marry? So the Duke of Savoy wanted to send a diplomatic mission to Scotland on behalf of the Duke just to go and see Mary and like kind of see what was going on. And their mission was to suggest that she marry a guy called Alfonso de Este, the Duke of Ferreira. I haven't even mentioned him in this podcast and I probably won't again because that was never really an option for her. But anyway, so this mission was being put together to go to Scotland and uh, Davy Rizzio was like, can I go on this mission? You know, he was like young, he was like about 28 years old. And he's just like, I want to see the world. I want to have adventures. And so he got to come along. And his role was probably sort of like secretary slash helper. Like there was lots of people going on this, like, you know, at least a couple dozen people. And he was one of those people. And Mary was like, you know, this is great. Like, welcome the mission of the Duke of Savoy. So his boss, Demoretto, who was... The Marquis de Moretto was in charge of this. And so he was put up, Mary gave him a nice room to stay in at Holyrood House. But I think I mentioned before last time, I can't go into every like little corner of the story, but there was an overall shortage of beds in Scotland. Mary had brought over a bunch of beds with her from France, but there's still just like not enough beds in Scotland. But also, especially in Edinburgh, where for a while, like there hadn't been a monarch on the scene. And suddenly all these missions from all these different places were going there. So all the, you know, like hotels or whatever, like it was really hard to find a place for people to stay. So it was very kind of her to let de Moretto stay in the palace at Holyrood House. But there was enough beds for like his whole entourage, including Davy, who apparently slept under his cloak on a pile of boxes and old chests somewhere in a corridor of the abbey there. And so they went there in kind of like late in the year, like in winter. And then they left before spring. So they went there for a super long time. And Mary obviously was like, thanks, but no thanks to marrying this rando guy you're suggesting. But just as the, the group was preparing to leave, Davy, who had made friends with other people there, he heard there was a vacancy for a fourth bass singer in the newly established Chapel Royal Choir. 
And so Mary had reestablished a choir because she was like Catholic and Catholic services, the kind that she did, there was a lot of singing in them. And so she had to, there wasn't, hadn't been a choir for whatever, 13 years or something, because there wasn't a queen there. Like the country was like turning Protestant, but she's like, I want this choir and it needs to be like a big ass choir. And so like, you can imagine the size of the choir in the sense, at first when I read that in another book, just that, you know, she needed a fourth member of I thought it was the fourth member of a choir. So I thought she had like a barbershop quartet and she needed a bass, but no, she needed a fourth bass singer for like a much larger choir. And so he's like, oh, I'm a great singer and I'm a bass singer. So, so he got his boss, Demoretto, to recommend him for the post. And in fact, he got the job. So when the rest of the people left, other people from Savoy all left, Davy Rizzio stayed on because he was like, well, you know, he was an adventurous person and he kind of saw that or figured out that staying in Edinburgh was probably going to be more, there's more opportunities for him there probably than back in the Mediterranean. So singing in the Chapel Royal Choir was a job, but it was not well paying. And initially he was unable to afford better accommodations. So he continued sleeping on old chests in the back corner of hallway. But almost immediately upon his debut in the choir, Mary was like, who is that guy with the deep voice over there? Like he intrigues me. And so she gave him a promotion of sorts. I think he stayed in the choir, but then she became one of his, her personal valets. So sort of like a personal butler, like part of that team. And so his responsibilities increased. We talked last time about how like giving gifts was her love language, but she was also desperately lonely and just really wanted to find a true friend who like she could talk to on this kind of like diplomatic level. And she started to realize like, oh my God, Davy Rizzio might be that person. He might be this friend I've been needing. So she showered him with gifts because that was her love language. And this is part of how we know how quickly she caught his attention because the, you know, inventories of like, or the bank account statements or whatever, it's like a couple, like a week after he started being in the choir, she like gave him a money gift because she was just like, Ooh, that guy. I like that guy. He was provided with chambers and a bed. So, you know, moving up in the world, not sleeping on the floor in the hallway anymore. And so his musicality was a real a thing that they had in common. And that's part of what drew her to him because she was very musical. She liked music. She liked dancing. She also liked putting on these, you know, mask performances, but also he was um, Italian. Like he was from the continent. And that reminded her of when she was in France. And it reminded her of her ex-mother-in-law, Catherine Medici. And the two of them had a lot in common in like a fun way, as well as just kind of he knew about diplomatic shit. He also loved playing cards. He loved music, obviously. He loved like mask performances. And he, because he had just come to Italy, he could advise her on the latest fashions. We know she was a fashion girly. And he also advised her on like how courts were run, like back in Venice where he was from. And so just because of his various skills, he became sort of her party planner. So he would arrange pageants and compose music for her. The songs he wrote that we know of are mostly like happy love songs. George Buchanan was still there. He was the one who like Hollywood icon Jimmy Stewart had recommended to be Mary's like instructor. So he was kind of writing. He was like the poet in residence, but then Rizzio kind of took over doing like the productions and the performances. And the two of them, Davey and Buchanan did collaborate on some of the mask performances. And Mary was honestly just drawn to him because what I'm telling you and what it seems like, he was just like a stand-up guy. He was just like, he could keep secrets. He was loyal to her. He like could give her advice. It was like impartial, like because he was sort of an outsider. Like everyone who had been in Scotland for a while was a member of one of the clans or one of the factions, but he was just kind of like objective and loyal to just her. So um, she started 
She took him on as kind of like her private secretary. So that meant that he would take charge of her incoming letters, um, advise her on what to do based on what the letters said. Maybe in at least one instance, we're pretty sure that like he wrote letters for her, you know, and then she would sign them and stuff. So they like really got really close and he got a lot of responsibility because he's up to the job and she was just like desperate for someone who she could like actually trust. One contemporary chronicler wrote about him, um, quote, from a musician became her secretary of state, an active politic man whose counsel the queen made use of in her greatest affairs. And of course, the greatest of all things that she needed to figure out and then she was happy to get someone else to advise her on was who was she going to marry? So the thing is, she was the Queen of Scots and she was the Dowager Queen of France and ideally wanted to marry somebody of equal status to herself, e.g. someone royal. But as they had, like, the people in Scotland had recently seen in England, like within the last decade, Mary I had married Philip of Spain. And they saw what happened there, which was kind of like Spain, you know, he kind of took over. And so if she married somebody who was the king of somewhere else, it would force Scotland into an alliance. And it just, everything got really complicated and kind of messy with that because although she's the queen regnant, um, which means like she's queen in her own name, not just queen because she's married to the king. As soon as she married a man, like the man, like the king would have more power than the queen. So it was kind of like, like, what do we, if we're going to choose a man who's going to like take over, like who's that going to be? So, okay. So then what about the option of marrying not a king, marrying a Scottish nobleman. And this was complicated in another way because like there's this precarious balance of the assholes who are all each member of one of these longstanding noble families. And so this would raise one family above another and that could maybe affect the other asshole lords. She also wanted to, at this point, marry somebody that Elizabeth would approve of because Mary was really working every angle she could to try and get Elizabeth to name her Mary as Elizabeth's heir, because Elizabeth was at this point like 35, um, had not yet married. She'd been queen of England for like 10 years and it was starting to seem like, is she going to ever get married? And if she doesn't, like she just had smallpox. It's like, who's going to be her heir? And Mary was like, I just, ugh, if she can like win Elizabeth over and get named as her heir, like that would just be good for her. But anyway, there were no royal English men available. That's why Elizabeth was the queen, because there was no English royal men. But then if Mary married an English not royal, like an English subject. That would be complicated because then she'd be raising one of Elizabeth's subjects to be equal to the queen. So even since before she came back to Scotland, Mary had been thinking about like Don Carlos, who is the sickly, insane son of the Spanish king, Philip. And Don Carlos does appear in the television show Rain. And we see that he seems like an okay person at first until there's a, he gets a brain injury when he he's in the, a, this dungeon with this like traveling sex chair he brings with him everywhere and he's like I, I won't marry mary unless i know that she can like really please me in this like bdsm relationship that i want but mary this is rain the tv show not <laughs> the actual story and so then mary is like i don't know if i can do that i don't know if i can be a dominatrix so then catherine de medici comes in and then they blindfold don carlos and then catherine de medici like does all the dominatrix shit, but then there's an accident. Don Carlos falls out of the sex chair, hurts his head, and then goes insane. In real life, he was sickly and insane, I think, because of Habsburg-related inbreeding, like to the point that his father, Philip II of Spain, who knew that like alliances would be great, was just like, I'm going to call this off because my son is just like not capable of being a husband to anyone because of all these health things. But she was like, I get that, but I like... 
uniting with Spain would be major for her power, for for everything, for the, the alliance that that would probably mean. So Mary wrote two letters towards the end of January with the help of Davy Rizzio, presumably. One was to her uncle Charlie uh, de Guise, the Cardinal of Lorraine, and the other letter was to the Pope. She asked Charlie to intercede with the Pope on her behalf, just to tell the Pope, like, Mary is, like, such a great prize, like, any Catholic monarch should want to marry her. And then she wrote to the Pope to be like, heads up, Michael Charlie's going to be writing to you. Like, I just really, as Catholics, like, let's figure this out. The other thing that was happening with the Don Carlos situation, besides him being insane, was that Catherine de' Medici was getting in the way of it. Actual Catherine de' Medici. On Reign, she was very supportive to Mary. In real life, she was not because she didn't want Mary to marry Don Carlos. So Catherine de' Medici's daughter, Elizabeth of Valois, was the latest wife of Philip of Spain. So Don Carlos was Philip's son from his first wife who had died. Philip later married, I'm going to call her Elizabeth de' Medici, like Catherine's daughter. And Catherine de' Medici just didn't want Mary to get involved in that because she was hoping that her daughter Elizabeth would have like maybe the next heir to Spain. And so she really didn't want... Like at this point, Elizabeth, Catherine's daughter, hadn't had any children yet. So she, anyway, Catherine de Medici was, was cock blocking this. And then meanwhile, her de Guise uncle started negotiating without asking her for a marriage to the Archduke Charles of Austria. My notes here just say, why is everyone called Charles? Everyone is called James, Charles, George, and Janet in this story. And I'll try to give them cute nicknames so you can tell them apart. But this guy doesn't really matter. So Archduke Charles of Austria, who was the third son of Ferdinand I, the Holy Roman Emperor, who's also one of the main candidates to marry Elizabeth as well. Mary rejected him on this basis. Um, she rejected anyone who's also considering marrying Elizabeth, I think, because she just didn't want to get like her hand-me-downs, but also she didn't want to like get in the way of Elizabeth by like taking someone who maybe Elizabeth was going to marry. The de Guise uncles were like, hey, you know, even though we like arranged the education of our niece so that she would be intelligent and could think for herself. We don't like that she's thinking for herself in a way that's not good for us. Um, so they sent an emissary to convince her to like do what her uncle said. Meanwhile, Catherine de Medici was like thinking about like, mm, who could marry Mary? And she's like, well, if thinking about like potentially mentally unstable men, how about Aaron Jr.? Um, remember him? He's in Scotland. He was the one who was caught in a fight and then was sent to jail and then was in house arrest and... Similar to Don Carlos, he was just like not in a position to be a useful husband to Mary at this point. Meanwhile, John Knox, goddamn John Knox, on the prowl. He's ready to get all the Protestants worked up, should Mary marry somebody Catholic. So again, he's just like, he's not waiting for her to do shit to get mad at her. He's like, I think she might do shit. So I'm preemptively mad at her. And it really reminds me, I don't want to get controversial here but of the way that the British tabloids write about Meghan Markle. Like they're just preemptively mad about what they think she might do without actually paying attention to what she actually does. It's, it's a similar misogynistic thing. Anyway, so there was a situation where he flipped out one time at Parliament um, and Mary called him to speak with her and she was like, fuck off talking about me and my marriage. She, well, what she literally said was, quote, what have you yet to do with my marriage? And he was just like, if you marry a Catholic, then the realm will be betrayed, blah, blah, blah. And like, again, his whole thing was just, he hated her. He hated the idea of her. He hated Catholics. He hated women. He thought that she and all Catholic women were sexy sluts who were unable to control their passion. Just reminder that he like was like known to frequent the sex workers of Edinburgh. And he also married a teenager. 
who he had been friends with that person's father and one might say groomed that girl. So the fact that he's just like slut shaming Mary, it's like, fuck off. And what's wild about this and just like really speaks to his hypocrisy. He was just like, Mary is a crazy slut where it's like all she's done is show up in this country as a young widow and she's trying to figure out who to marry. Meanwhile, Elizabeth I in England was actively having an affair with a married man who may have murdered his wife to be with her. So it's like, who's the like horny slut that we're mad at here? But John Knox was like, yeah, like Elizabeth's okay because she's Protestant, even though she's like a woman in charge, it's okay because she's Protestant. Like even though she's like having an affair with a married man and maybe killed his wife, it's like, "Mm," but it's okay because she's Protestant. Meanwhile, Mary, who's like literally doing nothing to anybody, he's like, whore. Meanwhile, as time went by and Mary was just like, she was really like getting into just like understanding who she could trust and who she wanted around her. And she like, to her credit, swapped out her half-brother Hollywood icon, Jimmy Stewart, as her right-hand man, instead choosing this other guy, Maitland, aka the Scottish Machiavelli. Um, she also brought Lord Ruthven, who you might recall, some people thought was a warlock and or necromancer into her inner circle. You know what? Always good to have a warlock slash necromancer around you. And the matter of her marriage was of prime importance to all of her advisors, including newcomer, newcoming advisor, Davy Rizzio. And what he was able to offer here was um, because he had, he was Catholic also, but he was also from Savoy and he knew from his diplomatic work, he knew kind of what sort of man the Spanish King Philip or who the Duke of Savoy would want her to choose. Like, because Mary needed to choose somebody, even if it wasn't like specifically the son of a specific king somebody that would mean that these other men, these other Catholic kings would like approve of it and want to work with her. By this point, Davy Rizzio was appointed her secretary for French affairs. So I guess all the letters between her and Catherine de Medici were going through him now as well. The more power he got. So remember with Catherine de Medici, there was, I don't know if it's technically racism or xenophobia or both, or just sort of like prejudice, but like people hated Italians. Remember even like Catherine de Medici, like she was like the queen of France and people are still just like, mm, but she's Italian. Oh, like that means she's like a gross person. So like Davy Rizzio was dealing with this sort of xenophobia, racism as well. A lot of people didn't like him because he was Italian. A lot of people didn't like him just because he was like not from Scotland. People didn't like him because he was Catholic. And so he had enemies. And part of how much we know about him is because his enemies wrote a lot of shit about him. He was accused by his enemies of corruption, to which I say... Who in this story was not in this court at this time? It's like, oh, he's taking bribes to like put your letter to Mary to the front of the pile of letters. Like, yeah, like everyone was doing shit like that. Like William Cecil was doing that for Elizabeth in England. It's not what is most important about Davy Rizzio is that he never took English money to betray Scotland's secrets. He never betrayed Mary, um, which I can say for a lot of other people in this story. So they just hated him not because of his actions, but because of who he was and the power that Mary was getting. I have to tell you this also. One other unsuccessful suitor for Mary's hand was the Swedish king, Eric Fourteenth, aka, when I saw this, I was like, wait, is this this guy? Yeah. So numerous episodes ago, I did a super special episode about Princess Cecilia of Sweden, who was the sexy Swedish princess. She had kind of like a 12 dancing princesses things where she and her sisters would secretly go dance with people at night. She ran off to be a pirate. Um, She's the sister of this guy, of Eric. And so at one point, Cecilia and her husband were sent to England to try and get Elizabeth to marry Eric. But instead of 
doing that. She just hung out with Elizabeth in England and became besties. Kind of ran a grift on her, maybe stole some stuff from her, and then ran away to be a pirate. Anyway, this is her brother, Eric. And he was one of the people, so he was trying to marry Elizabeth, but he was also trying to marry Mary as well. He's also the one that when Princess Cecilia, as a teenager, there was a situation where she was caught um, in a compromising position in her bedroom with a man and the man had his pants down. Um, and then Eric was like, oh my God, like this is the worst thing I've ever heard about. Like, meanwhile, he's just this fuck boy trying to marry every queen in Europe. Anyway, nobody in Scotland supported Eric's suit because Sweden was also like a pretty new-ish country. And this is a great quote. John Knox, you know, I hate him, but this is a great line from him. He said, about Eric. Such a man was too base for her estate. Had she not been a great queen of France, fie of Sweden. What is it? Which I, I don't know what my next merch drop is going to be, but I do love Sweden. What is it? Is a great line. So as much as everyone was like preemptively waiting for there to be a scandal, and a scandal actually did happen to Mary. Not that she had anything to do with it, although John Knox would later or I guess probably right at the moment, claimed that she had. So remember when she came over from France on her boat, there was two poets, both called Pierre. So one of them was called Pierre de Châtelard. And he and Mary had always gotten along well because remember, she loves French poetry. He's a French poet. He also liked dancing. And then they engaged in innocent courtly flirtation, which I think like all the young people did in her court, which is one of the things John Knox is really mad about. But then... In fact, on Valentine's Day, February 14th, Mary was taking one of her little trips. Um, she was en route to her home in St. Andrews. And so before she went to bed, her male servants would double check her room to make sure there was like no men hiding in it or whatever. And this time there was. Um, her men found Pierre was hiding under the bed's canopies with a sword and a dagger. And they're like, what the fuck? And Pierre was like, oh, it's just I was sleepy and I came in here for a nap. And they were like, yep, yeah, no. So he was banished from court, obviously, but he continued to pursue the queen, which means either he didn't take the hint and was like a deranged stalker, or he was secretly a spy who was sent there to besmirch her reputation by getting her caught up in a scandal. Either is possible. Both are equally likely, I think. So anyway, Mary went on to St. Andrews and so did Pierre secretly following her. And so he snuck into the castle and he burst into her chamber just as the Marys were about to prepare her for bed. So Mary screamed so loudly, everybody heard. Um, in seconds, to his credit, Hollywood icon Jimmy Stewart was in the room. She yelled at him to run him through with his sword right then and there. Like, kill this guy. Like, fuck this. Like, what is happening? Hollywood icon Jimmy Stewart was like, no. And this is actually good of him. Because he's like, because then the story would become way too scandalous and your reputation would be ruined. Like if he was like run through with the sword right now. Rather than kill Pierre, um, they had him arrested and imprisoned. Then there was like a really quick trial and he was sentenced to death. For months afterwards, Mary understandably wouldn't sleep alone. She insisted that her bestie Mary Fleming stay with her. So John Knox was just like, ha ha, you know, she had this man snuck in her room. Like that means she's a whore. But really, it was either Pierre was just unhinged or he somebody had paid him to do that to ruin her reputation and make her look slutty. Um, one of the other things John Knox said about her was, we call her not a whore, but she was brought up in a company of the vilest whoremongers. So basically calling her a whore. So two days after Pierre's execution, her uncle Frank, the Duke of Guise, the one who had been like her surrogate father and had helped raise her, was assassinated by a Huguenot in France. He was shot in the back. 
And she consoled herself by riding for days on end across the fields. Like again, in a, like she has this in common with Empress Cece, just like horseback riding athletics was like a way that she managed her various emotions. Not just riding her horse. She was also hawking, you know, like she was good at falconry. She also liked hunting. Somebody wrote later that they saw her weeping, that she was all alone and awful things kept happening to her, which yes. <laughs> and this is again, just her loneliness. Like she had the Marys there, she had Davy Rizzio, but like no one was truly able to like be there for her to help with a string of like really weird crises. A week later, like after her uncle's murder, a letter of condolences arrived from Elizabeth, which she was still sort of like hoping that that could be her person, that could be her bestie who could like understand her. And she made sure everyone saw and heard that she read and loved this letter um, so that Elizabeth would hear that Mary was so appreciative. I think she like put the letter like in the bodice of her dress to like care close to her heart. And she told everyone she was doing that. Meanwhile, John Knox, still full of shit. He was still like, in ways that really echo kind of like contemporary conservative politicians in numerous countries. He passed an act where that said the penalty for adultery was death. Like, okay, John, like what about like you're married to a teenager and you're like visiting sex workers? Is that adultery? I don't know. And now we're just going to take a break for a word from our sponsors. You can shop from anywhere doing pretty much anything. You might shop while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast. And however you shop, we all know and love the thrill of the hunt. But do you also know how to get the thrill of the best deals? Because Rakuten shoppers do. With Rakuten, they get the deals they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Sephora, Nike, and even Expedia if you're looking to get some travel in. And getting cash back doesn't mean you have to miss out on sales because those can just be stacked right on top. It's easy to use and based on a simple idea. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers and Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back through PayPal or check. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shout out to Claritin for supporting this episode and providing us with samples. So the thing is, I have allergies. My nose gets stuffy. I get sort of sinus congestion. And it just really can sometimes get in the way of doing things I really want to be doing like recording this podcast, for instance. But you might have noticed that when you're listening to this podcast, you never hear me sounding like a duck or uh, with a runny nose. I'm never wiping my nose or stuff on the microphone. And that's because luckily, for those of us who live with the symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin clear with Claritin D. Designed for serious allergy sufferers, Claritin D has two powerful ingredients in just one pill that relieve your allergy symptoms and decongest your nose so you can breathe better. So I've been taking Claritin D for my allergies, and the thing is... When I'm using it, you won't even know that I have allergies. My voice sounds so crystal clear when I'm recording and when you're listening to me right now. But also when I'm not doing podcasts, when I'm doing other life-related things, like just going about my day-to-day life, like sitting on the bus or going to work or whatever, going to the movie theaters. I don't have to worry about like, do I have tissues with me? Do I have a handkerchief? Is this noise bothering everybody? Am I being gross? Ready to live as if you don't have allergies? It's time to live Claritin Clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin clear. Use as directed. 
And we're back. Um, shortly after this was passed, one of Mary's French chaplains was discovered in bed with another man's wife. And John Knox was just like, this, see, this proof that like Mary's court is full of licentiousness. And that speaks badly of her because this guy was in bed with this other woman, nothing of which has to do with her. That summer, the summer after Pierre was executed, Mary went on her usual summer progress. Like in the summers, she's been in Scotland now for like a couple of years. And every summer she likes to travel around and see other parts of Scotland. While she was away, so mass was still being celebrated for like people who were Catholic in her private chapel. She wasn't there personally, but a crowd forced its way into her private chapel while mass was being celebrated. During this altercation, the priest's life was threatened. As a result, two of the ringleaders were scheduled for trial. John Knox was obviously on the side of these assholes. He sent out letters calling the nobles to, to intervene. He was just basically being like, don't be mad at these guys. Mary saw one of these letters John Knox wrote, and she was like, is this not treason? Like, is this not a treasonable act? And so Hollywood icon Jimmy Stewart and the Scottish Machiavelli asked John Knox to admit he was wrong and to settle the matter quietly. John Knox, of course, refused and was put on trial. And guess what? He defended himself like all assholes do. Mary was just like, oh my God, finally, like I've got this guy where I want him, like this fucking guy who's been like on my ass this whole time. Apparently when she saw him in the courtroom, she smiled and laughed and she was in high spirits. She said, yon man made me weep and shed never tear himself. I will see if I can make him weep. But, of course, John Knox had enough friends in the group that they uh, voted to not charge him with treason. When Mary heard that that was the result, she demanded a revote, but it came back the same. And one of the reasons why everybody voted this way was because her goddamn half-brother, Hollywood icon Jimmy Stewart, was still mad at her for, like, giving him less power. And he had used his influence to convince the others to vote for acquittal. And this was actually his first open act of betrayal, that, like, Mary could not see as anything other than that. And Elizabeth demanded that Mary had to marry somebody from England who supported the Scotland and England not going to war with each other. And Mary was like, okay, like she wanted, it was so many things she had to balance, but she didn't want Elizabeth to be mad at her. So she had to at least pretend that she was going to go along with what Elizabeth said. Elizabeth is like, I'm just going to choose someone and you can marry who I choose. And Mary was like, we'll see. Through all of this stress, though, Mary fell ill again. Um, and we know that the sequence of events for her was off and she was stressed about something that affected her appetite that would trigger her underlying chronic illness, which is maybe porphyria, one of the symptoms of which is like severe depression. And so at this point, she fell ill for about two months. Um, it was described as she was suffering from diverse melancholies. This might have been a gastric ulcer and maybe porphyria. But as per usual, she bounced back afterwards. And she just refocused herself on finding a husband that would like still not make Elizabeth mad. So she's like, okay, Elizabeth, like, who do you suggest? Who do you think I should marry? And Elizabeth was like, okay, this is going to sound crazy. Like it's a bit out of the box, but what if you marry my boyfriend, Robert Dudley, AKA Bobby Dutz, who was the boyfriend who she was with, who was married. And then he maybe killed his wife. So everyone knew that this was her favorite and maybe her boyfriend. So this plan was categorically outrageous. But wait, there's more because Elizabeth said like her plan was like if Mary accepted Bobby does as her husband, if Elizabeth would then officially name Mary her successor. So to pave the way for this, she made Bobby does into the Earl of Leicester. And furthermore, Elizabeth's plan was delusional. So it was that Mary would like live in England with them. So Elizabeth and Bobby Duds and Mary would all live together in Elizabeth's court with the two women like sister wives. And Elizabeth would be like the sugar daddy, like 
paying for everything. Like, what is this plan? It is a bad plan. And Mary was like, we'll see, because she couldn't say no to Elizabeth because then she'd get in trouble. And she was honestly still at this point being like, can I marry like Captain Insano, Don Carlos? But eventually Philip was just like truly like for the no, like my son, no, like no one can marry him. This is just he is a he's not doing well. And into the void of who can her husband be came a new option, Henry Stewart, a.k.a. Lord Darnley. And we're going to call him Darnley because that's what everyone always calls him. And the name suits him. So I didn't mention this before, but Darnley had already met Mary once before. He's like slightly younger than her. So when she was 15, sorry, when he was 15 and she was 18, just after I think the King of France had died, he had been sent by his parents to send their condolences to her to be like, you know, we're so sorry, the king has died, um, et cetera. And this was maybe to kind of like get him in front of her in case in future she needed a new husband because his parents were super scheming. So his dad was Lennox, who I mentioned in part one, he was the guy who wanted to marry Marie de Guise. And then he was so mad when he couldn't that he, in fact, left Scotland, betrayed the country to go and work with Henry VIII instead. And his wife is Margaret Douglas. And we did a whole episode about Margaret Douglas back in the Women Trapped in Tower season. Margaret Douglas is the daughter of Margaret Tudor and therefore Mary Queen of Scots' half-aunt. So this made Darnley and Mary cousins. They share a grandmother. Margaret Douglas was also very like ambitious. Lennox was very ambitious. And they knew that between them, their son Darnley had a claim to maybe be the next king of England. And then Lennox was a great-grandson of Henry VII, so he darnley also had a claim to the throne from that as well. So they were just kind of like, this kid, like, we're going to make him be king of somewhere. Like, they're just big stage parent energy. So Darnley had grown up in the English royal court, where as a teen, he was briefly one of Elizabeth's favorites because she liked handsome young men. She called him a long lad because he was tall. He was like six feet tall, so like similar height to Mary. He'd been educated in France, was a skilled musician, a passionate huntsman, and a fine dancer, which is like, of course, Liz doesn't just choose anyone to be a favorite. They have to be like a handsome young man, but also have like some skills. So his parents were like, we think the Mary should marry him and then he can be the king. And then that will be like the end result. It's like, now I haven't read this book, but Great Expectations by Charles Dickens, but I have seen the movie. And I believe in that movie, so Miss Havisham raises this girl Estella to kind of like revenge on her behalf against all men. So like Estella is raised to be kind of a weapon. And in a similar way, Lennox and Margaret Douglas raised Darnley to be kind of their weapon. Like he was raised being told like, you should be the king and one day you're going to be the king. So he was just kind of like rotted in that way to begin with. Sorry, spoilers. So this whole thing might've come together with an assist from Bobby Duds. So Elizabeth was just being like, Mary and I can be sister wives of Bobby Duds and I'll live together and whatever. And Bobby Duds was like, that is not what I want out of my life. So he encouraged Lennox to ask Elizabeth for permission to return to Scotland. So again, Lennox had been one of the asshole lords in Scotland, but then he got mad at Marie de Guise left Scotland basically in exile to go to England to work with Henry VIII against Marie de Guise. So all of his lands and titles have been taken away. So what Bobby does is suggesting is like, well, what if Lennox asks permission to go back to Scotland to try and get to legally reclaim his territories that had been taken away? 
Elizabeth was like a little suspicious because she knew that he was a scheming schemer, but like everyone there was. So he's like, oh, Elizabeth let him go. But she's like, okay, but I'm going to hold your wife, Margaret Douglas, as kind of a hostage. (laughs) Um, She was put in basically house arrest so that if he pulled any shit, like she, the wife would be punished basically. But what she didn't know is that Lennox didn't give a shit. And Margaret Douglas was willing to put up with anything to make her son be king. Anyway, so up in Scotland, the Scottish Parliament was meeting. At this point, it was being led by Maitland, the Scottish Machiavelli. And Scottish Machiavelli made the motion to have Lennox's hereditary lands and honors returned to him on the basis that Elizabeth had sent him there and Elizabeth and Mary were friends. And so they should do this as like a nice thing for Elizabeth, who was Mary's friend. Anyway, this passed and Lennox got his lands back. I do want to mention, just because this came up when I was reading about this particular meaning of parliament, the people of Edinburgh, like the everyday people, were still, they stand for Mary. They love her. If they were here today, they would be calling her mother. Like they adored her. Like at one point when she was going to parliament, like she was going down the Royal Mile, which is like the road between the palace and parliament, people shouted at her about how she was like the goddess Diana goddess of the hunt and she did like hunting and sometimes in the mask parties arranged by her bestie Davy Rizzio she would sometimes appear as Diana in these productions and also that's another point where Rain was accurate because there was a costume party and she was dressed as Diana on that show anyway also note this winter just for context um 1564 there was a little ice age gripping Europe so climate change in which it was so cold the four days before Christmas and Mary like was confined to her rooms like just she i guess the fire was on the tapestries were up she had all of her you know duvets on just to add to everybody's kind of like overall stress level anyway so lennox is in scotland he's getting his land back but he's like ooh, but like my son has to be here to sign this paperwork so then he asked elizabeth like can my son come up here just for paperwork reasons um and elizabeth was like okay i guess and so like things are coming together for this potential marriage match And cheering this on and helping this out, honestly, was Davy Rizzio, who was, knew what sort of man, like, Mary probably should marry. Like, he kind of saw the angles that Darnley would be a good match, like, on paper. And so, like, and to their credit, Lennox had noticed how influential Rizzio was. And he knew that if he got on Rizzio's good side, that Rizzio would kind of, like, encourage Mary to do this. So they bribed him to get nice things and cozied up to him and stuff like that. So... Darlene and Mary had met earlier as teens, but now they met again as, I'm going to say adults, but like she was 23, he was 20. So like young adult. So they met at Wemyss Castle that February. And in a charming detail, Mary had been, she rode there from St. Andrews where she had been hanging out and doing one of her play acting things with the Marys where they were pretending they were little bourgeois housewives who lived simply in a small house away from the royal court. Um, While she was there, she gave some speeches, including one about, you know, arguing in favor of female empowerment. So it's just like a little feminist conclave, her and her friends. And it's so interesting that Mary did this play acting. She was like a normal person. We talked about Queen Charlotte did that. Marie Antoinette did that. It's just an interesting thing. Do do rich people today pretend like they're normals also? I don't know. Anyway, so they met. Um, Again, they're both six feet tall. And I think like when you're six feet tall and you meet someone else who's six feet tall, you're just like, oh, you got it. He was graceful, you know, he was the long lad and they hung out for a few hours and he showed off how he was good at hunting and dancing and at music. Mary seemed like polite, but not like over the moon about it. Um, Some people wrote that like when she met him, she like 
fell into instantaneous lust and like couldn't forget about him. But she was just kind of, okay, okay, this is an option. Fine. Meanwhile, (laughs) Elizabeth was just like, but what about marrying Bobby Duds? Like she just like, get over it, Elizabeth. But we do know that one month later, Mary made a significant investment in new gowns for her wardrobe of like non-black outfits. So we can see whether it's Darnley or somebody else. She's like preparing for a new era of her life. Like after four years, which is how long she'd been in Scotland by now, um, of black outfits, this was as significant as a switch from black and white to color in The Wizard of Oz. Like this is, or as like Taylor Swift going from the reputation era to the lover era. Like, so she didn't start wearing colored clothes, but she was like ordering fabric to make them. So the Don Carlos scenario was officially off the table. And then finally, Elizabeth went to Bobby Duds and was like, do you want to marry Mary? And he was like, no, like you never asked me. And I don't want that either. So that was off the table. So Darnley was truly becoming the best option. It seems like things are falling into place that that is maybe what she's going to choose. So then he fell ill with maybe measles, but with probably the early stages of syphilis, because later he, his symptoms line up with that. So he stayed at Stirling Castle and Mary personally tended to him. She spent time at his bedside. She personally like brought him sweet meats and mopped his brow. Like she was personally tending to him. So it's in a real thing, like on Grey's Anatomy, that like early Grey's Anatomy where Catherine Heigl fell in love with the patient. Like she seemed to come to fall in love with him, like as he convalesced. So by the time he was released from his sick room and returned to court, she was clearly in love with him or just like really had a big crush on him. So there's going to be one other scenario later on where she also tends to another sick man. And I wonder if it's like she was so young when Francis, her first husband, fell ill and died. Like if she is getting some sort of like trauma, PTSD-esque thing where like she couldn't save Francis, like she stayed by his bed day and night and then he died. But if she stayed by Darnley's bed day and night and he got better. So it's sort of like, is that like healing that wound? I don't know. Or if it's just like something about, I don't know. She, she's just a really kind person. She likes helping people. She likes giving gifts. And anyway, like him falling sick seemed to be the best thing that happened for this match because this, like she was now all in. Davy Rizzio was shipping this. He was like, this is like the best option. But he cautioned her to keep negotiations open with the other suitors. So nobody knew that she made up her mind who would get the final rose, so to speak. It is kind of like the bachelorette in that sense. Anyway, but as per Davy Rizzio, marrying Darnley would please the king of Spain and it would hopefully like marrying him would be a way that like with Darnley on the scene, like that's a way to get like Hollywood icon Jimmy Stewart off her back. Like it would truly sideline him. And just to highlight how influential Davy Rizzio was at this point, John Knox wrote, her counsel at this time was only the Earl of Lennox, the Lord Ruthven, but chiefly David Rizzio, the Italian, ruled all. So he was like really influential at this point. And the fact that he supported this match, which he saw was a good idea, was I think influential as well. Now, this brings us to, there is an overall thing that shows up in a lot of Mary Queen of Scots movies and also in some books about her. There were Darnley and Rizzio fucking which who knows this is all based on there's this one passage where it was written that they they lay down together in the same bed but it's like a longer passage and the point of it which was written by a hater is more saying that just like Rizzio went so hard for team Darnley because it was a way to get himself more power to get the other assholes out of power so the insult as it were 
in this one passage isn't about these two were having sex. It's more about the Davy Rizzo was being duplicitous. So were they fucking, you know what, maybe, but the one quote that a lot of people pull on for evidence about that doesn't necessarily mean that. And if people had thought they were fucking, then maybe, I don't know. I don't know. I don't want to say they weren't. There's also rumor that Rizzio was Mary's lover, which I feel more strongly suspecting was very not true because she like, despite what John Knox was saying, like Mary was very cautious to not be seen as a slut. So anyway, this is all unfolding. Like all the spies in Scotland were writing back to Elizabeth, like kind of looks like Mary's going to marry Darnley. So Elizabeth demanded Darnley return to England. Mary demanded he stay in Scotland. Because he was an English subject and because of his family connections that made him be somewhere in the line of succession to England, he couldn't marry without Elizabeth's permission. But I mean, as much as we know, if you recall from the um, Lady Jane Grey season, it seems like no one ever got Elizabeth's permission to marry anyone. Anyway, so remember his mother was sort of on house arrest to make sure that they didn't pull anything shitty. Well, they did. So this is at the point where Margaret Douglas, um, Darnley's mother, was put in prison, but Darnley still didn't leave Scotland. I'm sure the mother was like, I'm fine. Like, just become the king that you were meant to be. Margaret wound up being in the tower for two years. Um, and I'll let you know when she's freed up when that comes up in the story. Anyway, the reason why this marriage, like aside from just Darnley being, was a person who needed to get Elizabeth's permission, like the big threat was Catholicism. So together, these two people, they could reignite the ambitions of English Catholics, which combined with Mary's Scottish Catholic forces and those of other Catholic countries like Spain could maybe usurp Elizabeth and put Mary in her place. So I'm saying like Elizabeth was like freaking out about it, but it's like legitimately like this was kind of an act of war, Mary choosing to marry him. A lot of people didn't want this marriage to happen. Like Elizabeth, obviously the Marys were also like, we don't necessarily support this marriage, um, but some people did support it. The Spanish King Philip did. The French boy King Charles and his mother, Catherine de' Medici, both supported it. Hollywood icon Jimmy Stewart did not support the marriage because he knew it would mean that he got less power. He, great insult here though, he called Darnley a girlish nincompoop. And Hollywood icon Jimmy Stewart and Darnley did not get along like, because shortly after Darnley arrived, he was shown a map of Scotland. And remember that Hollywood icon Jimmy Stewart was, he's the Earl of Moray, which is this kind of like part of this large area of Northern Scotland. And Darnley was like, oh, what's Moray? Like, that seems like that's a lot of land for one guy to have. And so Hollywood icon Jimmy Stewart was just like, oh, like he didn't like being called out for like how he obviously had like destroyed Kako the North and stuff for his own power. Anyway, regardless, Mary was like, you know what? Watch me. And she prepared to marry Darnley. So she had him knighted the Lord of Ardmanach and the Earl of Ross in a grand investiture ceremony. So this was meant to sort of consolidate support for the match among all the assholes. At the same time, 14 of his kinsmen were also knighted to support, to get his family to support the match as well. During the ceremony, Darnley himself took an oath that he would always be true and loyal to Mary, which... Not going to spoil anything for people who don't know this story, but like, sure, Jan. So by now, so everything was kind of coalescing in this way where Mary was getting more control and the people who had previously been manipulating her were being sidelined. So both Hollywood icon Jimmy Stewart and Maitland, the Scottish Machiavelli, had lost influence and power because Mary was all about this new circle of advisors. So including Davy Rizzio, Lennox, Darnley's dad, 
And like the influence of Davy Rizzio was so well known. Even Catherine de' Medici was told about how powerful this Italian now was. So I don't know. She was like, yeah, Italians, power, love it or not. But anyway, I just, we're talking a little about Davy Rizzio because he's a really important part of the story. And because I think in a lot of retellings, his importance is downplayed because there's a lot of other stuff that happens. Like I'm doing whatever, 12 hours of podcasting about it so I can dive into it. But some people like he was her musician where it's like he was basically acting secretary of state to the point that Catherine de' Medici knew his name. Anyway, so the marriage not yet happened, right? So Hollywood icon Jimmy Stewart petitioned Elizabeth for support to sabotage the marriage. And she responded by sending him 3000 um, pounds, like money. So Hollywood icon Jimmy Stewart's plan was to kidnap Mary Darnley and Lennox and bring them all to London. But Mary was warned and she escaped her pursuers along with an armed escort of 2000 men. Everyone keeps trying to kidnap her and she is just always one step ahead and you live to see it. And honestly, the more the people were like, don't do it, that made her realize like, oh, I really need to do it because the people that I want to be pissing off are really mad about it. So that must mean it's the right thing to do. Anyway, so just by the way, Hollywood icon Jimmy Stewart and the Lords asking Elizabeth for money to help kidnap Mary was like literally treason. Anyway, but Mary and Darling did in fact get married. Davy Rizzio was the event coordinator. So they got married on July 29th, 1565 at the Palace Chapel at Holyrood. You know, the music was amazing. And Davy Rizzio himself stood by the altar wearing a cloak of black velvet brocaded with gold. Mary wore a great morning gown of black with a great white morning hood, um, not unlike what she had worn the day that her first husband, Francis, had been buried. It was a Catholic ceremony. Um, Darnley apparently kind of like tastefully stepped aside for the Catholic bits because he was like not truly a committed Catholic. He was like maybe Protestant adjacent. But anyway, after the marriage happened, Mary got her ladies to help her switch out her outfit into a new outfit to unveil her new era. Mary was now wearing colors again. And so with Davy arranging things, you know, the reception was iconic. There was three masks were performed, one of which the goddess Diana appeared. <laughs> Not literally the goddess Diana. Somebody dressed as her. Who knows? Davy had connections. Anyway, so the goddess Diana was portrayed in this mask, reciting melancholy verses in Latin, complaining she was so miserable now that her handmaiden Mary was to be taken from her side by the jealous power of love. The newlyweds bought new outfits for their household with their new coat of arms on it, along with other gifts for everybody, like bed linens and jewelry. Like, it's a total rebrand. Like, everything is just, like, colors now. Like, they're married. Like, it's... I'm calling him Darnley, but his name is Henry. Um, so it's like King Henry, Queen Mary, like, let's do this. It's a new era. Of course, their enemies were still plotting to undermine their joint rule and destroy their power. Um, there were rumors that Darnley was planning to murder Hollywood icon Jimmy Stewart. He probably was. I mean, the rumors of Hollywood icon Jimmy Stewart was planning to capture Darnley and his dad Lennox and send them back to England, which I think we know he was. But Davy Rizzio was on all this. He suggested that they mobilize their defenses just to get ready for inevitable civil war. Um, in order to get nobles on their side and loyal men to fight with them, Mary released Kako the North Jr. from prison where he'd been ever since, what, episode two? And so Kako the North Jr., his lands and honors were restored. He became the Earl of Huntley again. And this got all the Gordons, all the people that Kako the North had originally had influence over, back on Mary's side. In fact, she appointed Cock Ozenorth Jr. to her privy council in the seat left vacant from when she, you know, contributed to his father dying. And then, at Rizzio's advice, Mary proclaimed Hollywood icon Jimmy Stewart an outlaw. 
which the irony is that Hollywood icon Jimmy Stewart was now kind of in the same situation where he had put Cock of the North Sr. three years earlier. He had been an overly ambitious subject facing a charge of treason. But in this case, he was not dead and stuffed with herbs like Cock of the North Sr. had been. So he knew that he could get people on his side to fight back and thus began civil war. So Hollywood icon Jimmy Stewart teamed up with Aaron Sr., who already hated Lennox, like for various reasons. And so he was happy to join and bring his family, the Hamiltons. Their plan was again to kidnap Mary, kill Darnley, and hold Mary somewhere under house arrest while he took over as king. And when I wrote that out, I was like, this is kind of like fuck, Mary, kill, but not really. That was their plan. Davy Rizzio, for uh, various reasons, convinced Darnley to go with him to one of John Knox's sermons. I think this was just to sort of like show everybody, like, look, like I know the civil war is happening, but Mary's still cool with Protestants. She's cool with Catholics. Like, you know, she's not a hater. Anyway, um, Mary made a formal proclamation of religious tolerance. By now, Maitland, aka the Scottish Machiavelli, had kind of pieced out. He was just kind of like backing away slowly. He didn't want to necessarily team up with Hollywood Ike and Jimmy Stewart, but he was on the outs with Mary. So he's like, I'm just going to lay low for a while in true Scottish Machiavelli style. In his absence, though, like he was Secretary of State. So when he left, like someone had to take over. And that's why I said before, like Davy Rizzio was basically now acting Secretary of State. This was never made officially official, which is why maybe some people don't realize how influential he was, but he was doing all the stuff Secretary of State would be doing. Anyway, so Civil War. Marion Darnley, like, like, you know, they're going to serve looks. Like they, they got bespoke Met Gala level armor outfits, kind of like when Zendaya came dressed as Joan of Arc to the Met Gala at that time, I imagine. They went to oversee their army. So the overall impression that Mary portrayed was kind of Boudicca. She's wearing a steel bonnet on her head, which is maybe a helmet. She had chainmail on under her cloak, pistols at her side, on her belt. Like she had made special armor, like special lady armor to fit the contours of her body. Like she looked amazing. You know, Elizabeth I gets a lot of shout outs for her showing up in armor that time. But like Mary did it first, frankly, I think. Don't correct me. Maybe I'm wrong. But Mary did it also. And honestly, she was not just wearing this outfit, but she was like there with the army. Like she'd been with the army during the cock of the North scenario as well. So like she had some experience with battlefields and stuff. And honestly, she was so impressive that even John Knox was impressed with her stamina. She stayed out and about for weeks on end. He said, quote, the queen's courage increased manlike so much that she was ever with the foremost. So he was like, oh my God, she's so good. She's almost like to the level of a man, which is, I guess, the highest compliment he could ever pay. One thing I read said, only one other woman could keep up with her, like the men could, but only one other woman. I don't know who, it didn't say who, who, like one of the Marys, like who, who is this like icon? I don't know. Anyway, so while Mary was off leading armies elsewhere in her Met Gala armor, Hollywood icon Jimmy Stewart came to Edinburgh and he presumed, he dared to presume that the people there would support him because he thought that they all loved him. But guess what? <laughs> they did not. They all supported Mary because remember, they love her. In fact, the cannons of Edinburgh Castle were fired upon him just as they were aimed at Archibald Douglas by Mary's grandmother, Margaret Tudor, all those years ago. Edinburgh does not permit assholes in. These cannons can sense it and they will be aimed at you if you are an asshole trying to get in. In fact, the people of Edinburgh rose up and forced Hollywood icon Jimmy Stewart and his guys to flee. Meanwhile, Davy Rizzio knew Mary needed support from other countries, and he put into practice lessons in diplomacy he learned from his old boss, de Moretto, back when he was at the court of the Duke of Savoy. 
So he wrote some letters for Mary to send somewhere. He would write, she's busy. He writes the letters, she signs them, but they talk about the letters they're going to say. So he wrote a letter to send to Madrid in Spain. And what's crucial about that is it just shows that this Scottish civil war was already of international concern. And perhaps he was inspired by how his native land of Savoy had won freedom from French occupation when it put its trust in the Habsburgs a few years earlier. Because remember, the Spanish royal family are Habsburgs. Now, I don't, I didn't find any other things about this to learn more about it, but I know that there's people listening from Ireland and I had to let you know that I'm not forgetting about you. Um, Davy Rizzio also considered stirring up trouble in Ireland where lots of people there hated England. And so he thought like maybe they could come and help out Mary's side in this battle. He sent, um, Davy Rizzio sent two Gaelic speaking Highlanders were sent over the water to track down the great Irish chieftain Shane O'Neill in his Ulster refuge. They wanted him to launch an onslaught on the English settlements in the names of Mary and Darnley. And I picture like, I'm familiar with like a medium amount of Irish actors, but I have to picture Colin Meany, Miles O'Brien from Star Trek as, as this guy is the great Irish chieftain, Shane O'Neill. And they just came to him and they're just like, Hey, will you attack the English for us? And he was just like, tell me less. Like I'm already on it. Um, so Hollywood icon Jimmy Stewart issued a wordy, badly written proclamation of all of his grievances, one of which was that he felt that Davy, as an Italian, was offering, quote, sinister counsel on the weighty matter of Her Majesty's marriage. And I love that he wrote this letter and just what I was reading about it said the Scots ignore this completely. Like no one gave a shit about Hollywood icon Jimmy Stewart at this point. He was less than powerless. He tried to get support from Elizabeth in England again, but she refused because she wasn't into the idea of rebels usurping a literal queen because that was kind of a bit of a slippery slope for her. Meanwhile, Mary was getting support from like the Pope. Philip in Spain was also helping out, but she kept reassuring her subject like, yes, I know that these Catholic people are supporting us, but I'm not going to be, I'm not going to pull Mary the first bloody Mary on you. Like I'm not going to make this kingdom be Catholic again. I'm still cool with Protestants. But also, just the way that she was phrasing all of this, she was making everyone see, like, Hollywood icon Jimmy Stewart wanted to be like, I'm the face of Protestantism. But she was like, no, he's just this fucking rebel. Like, please don't follow him. And nobody did. So this whole thing became known as the chase about raid because Mary's army and Hollywood icon Jimmy Stewart's army never actually faced off against each other. They're just chasing each other around for like months and months and months. Eventually, her forces, which um, comprised as many as 18,000, were preparing to attack his much smaller group of people, and he just gave up. He ran off to England, and so did all of his guys. And Elizabeth let them into England. One person that she let leave was Aaron Sr., who had been given this land in Chateau Le Hereau in France, and he was allowed to go to France. But anyway, so they're all gone. So Mary needed a new military guy to step in because of just Hollywood actor Jimmy Stewart kind of used to play that role for her and he had taken a lot of the military guys with him. She's like, I need a really good military guy. And she remembered her mother had recommended this guy, Bothwell, before her mother had died because Bothwell had like come in in a clutch time and really helped out in a military way for her mother. And remember, she had once attended a wedding fireworks party at Bothwell's house that time when Bothwell's sister got married. So he had been in Paris where he'd been living in exile because he had been put in prison for fighting with someone, but then escaped prison. Anyway, so Bothwell was in Paris and Mary just like sent for him. She's like, I need an army guy. Bothwell, I think is the guy in this moment. She appointed him lieutenant governor to, of the Queen's army. This made Darnley mad because he wanted his dad to get the job, but like, fuck off, Darnley. 
Yeah. And so I mentioned before, Cocker the North Jr. was now on our Privy Council. Bothwell also joined the Privy Council. Scotch Machiavelli was out of town. And then it turns out that somewhere during all these raids, which were basically her honeymoon period, Mary had become pregnant. What will happen next? Maybe something good. What could go wrong? We'll find out next time in the next chapter of There's Something About Mary, Queen of Scots. So yeah, so I'll just let you know, starting this month, um, new episodes and then working backwards from them, there are now transcripts available of episodes of Vulgar History. So you can get those if you go to vulgarhistory.com and just click on the episode you want the transcript for and they're going to be on the newest ones and then working backwards. So I'm really happy to be working with Eveline Malik of The Wordery for her transcriptions. We also have our store. The merch is now available. Vulgarhistory.com slash store is where you go if you're in the U.S. And if you're international, the shipping is much better if you go to vulgarhistory.redbubble.com. We've got all the designs there. Beautiful artist design things. Where is your God now? John Knox. Designed by Jennifer Ferguson. Renaissance Reformation Girl Squad and Goth Queen Mum Friend. Designed by Karen Moynihan. Catherine de Medici's Flying Squadron. Designed by Jan Jupiter as well as the Chevalier de On. Designed by Jan Jupiter. And you can also support me on patreon.com slash annfosterwriters. If you pledge at least $1 a month, you get early ad-free access to all episodes of Vulgar History. Like if you can't wait to hear what happens next to Mary, like that's, you get that like almost a week early, honestly. Also, um, if you join the Patreon at least $5 or more a month, then you get access to my special Patreon-only spinoff podcast, so Vulgar Peace Theater, where I talk with Lana Wood Johnson and Alison Epstein about costume dramas. Most recently, we talked about The Woman King. And we're going to be talking about Chevalier, the movie about the Chevalier St. George. We're going to be... Anyway, there's lots of old episodes there of us talking about movies. And then also we do those about once a month. And I also do the spinoff podcast, So This Asshole, where I talk about terrible men from history. And there's so many terrible men in this story. I have had requests to do an episode, So This Asshole, John Knox, which I have pledged I will do if and when I get to 500 Patreon followers. I'm currently at 300 and something. And so if you want that, <laughs> um, join Patreon, patreon.com slash annfosterator, because I will do that once I reach that goal. Anyway, you can follow me and this podcast on Instagram at vulgarhistorypod and on TikTok at vulgarhistory. And until next time, my friends, keep your pants on and your tits out. Vulgar History is hosted, written, and researched by Anne Foster and edited by Christina Lumagi. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am extremely excited to invite you to Rachel Uncensored. It's my podcast where I sit down and get real with my friends and celebrity guests where we talk about all sorts of topics. And sometimes we might be under the influence when we do so. We cover things from personal stories to hot button issues. And it's the only place on the internet you can find an uncensored version of me. It's a side of me that you might not have seen before because it's not the most family or brand friendly. But don't worry, I'm still sort of slightly a decent human being. If you're intrigued, then make sure you check it out. New episodes drop every Wednesday. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored.